Yeah, hold that, please. Level five. Thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to urge in the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to urge in the Channelized Bimbingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. I'm John Norman and today you'll be hearing from former England fast bowler Steve Palmerson and also a bloke who's been up all night watching Australia lose to India, Jared Kimber. And that's where we're going to start this week. India levelling up the series in Australia in thrilling fashion. A century from standing captain Ajinkit Rahane, a debutant fast bowler, stealing the limelight, the second coming of Keith Miller, possibly, and news that the New Year's test is set to go ahead as scheduled in Sydney. Although the visitors will have to make do without another fast bowler. So, will it be Warner to the rescue? Uh, will it rain throughout? Uh, or will there even be a call-up for a surprise uh, Indian uh, living in and around the New South Wales area? Who knows? But the series is alive. That's something to celebrate. And we will celebrate here on the Cricket Collective. Okay, Jared, so India eventually winning the game on day four at the MCG. Not one Australian batsman made it past 50. Um, an innings of a lifetime from Rohane, a debut to remember for Siraj, coming-of-age test again for Bumra. Um, we even got to see uh, Jadeja's trademark celebrations. Absolute brilliance from India, uh, but, uh, but pretty poor from Australia, and Tim Payne wasn't holding back after the match. Um, but considering where India were, at the end of the first test, 36 all out, no Shammy, no Kohli. Um, the manner in which that they dismantled Australia in the second test. Uh, you know, as a cricket historian, where does this victory um, rank in India's history? Well, they don't win in Australia very often, realistically. So um, any win in Australia for them is quite high. I think coming off the 36, I think it's more of an emotional thing because we, we know that India were actually winning that test until they were pulled out for 36. Uh, so they were never that far behind in, in that particular game. But coming to Melbourne, losing your captain, uh, losing your probably most experienced and best bowler, their other best bowler isn't even there. Uh, it's, I think it's a huge effort for them to come back. But, but we losing talked about the it on the last... Yeah, we talked about it on the, on the last episode, didn't we? You know, essentially when it comes down to it, uh, a lot of things went right in that 36 spell i don't think australia bowled any worse on the morning um on uh, against india uh and they just didn't get the wickets they kept you know there was play and misses there were uh, in, inside edges things you know a couple of drop catches sometimes that's a difference isn't it and i i thought india tried to get through um 
briefly in the 36 and every time someone played miss there was an edge to, edge to slip uh and in this one there wasn't so you know that, that that's the kind of randomness of test cricket when it comes down to it uh australia doesn't have a very good batting lineup that has an incredible bowling lineup that is going to win you a lot of tests but it also means that you're going to go up and down uh like a yo-yo and luckily for india they've got a bit more of a balanced side than australia and incredible depth the, the ability to be able to bring in the sort of players they did like siraj and uh and, and um shibnam gill is uh you know most teams would die for that kind of bench strength. Jared, were you surprised at the toss that Australia decided to bat first after bowling them out to 36? Coley's 10,000 miles away. You know, in theory, they're in a you know, pretty poor state when you look at the way India were coming off the field at Adelaide. You know, Tim Payne wins the toss with the bowling lineup he's got. You know, I've been tempted just to chuck them back in and say, right, we're going to knock you over very, very cheaply again. I think if the exact same situation happened now, they would definitely bowl first. But I think that they had spent, well, their entire life watching people play at the MCG and think it is not a pitch that you want to particularly, uh, you know, uh, it, it falls apart at the end, essentially. So if you can bat first, you can. The thing is that this is a fundamentally different MCG pitch than they usually go up against. It was, it was green. I can't remember ever seeing an MCG pitch green. Um, I didn't know they were allowed to have green grass in the MCG. Even most of the grass around the ground at the MCG, as you will know, Harmi, is painted uh, because mm. it's basically just a sandy outfield. So you don't get greenery there. Um, so I think they were probably a little bit spooked by that. Uh, they're not, Australia's not really a bowling first place or a bowling first cricket culture, even, even less so than many other places. So I think all that came against them. But yeah, if, you, if you're doing it purely on, on strategy and, uh, and the fact that you just rolled them for 36, I think it would have been a good idea uh, to, to put them in first. But I don't think it would, that's not what cost them the game. What cost them the game is they, they fundamentally can't make runs. They haven't made runs mm. in, you know, any of the innings that they've had a chance so far. Um, and realistically, they couldn't make runs in Adelaide when India dropped them a thousand times. So we, we know that they're not of, of that level. Talking about the catching, you know, we were, just, we were talking last week about the, uh, the new breed of, of modern bowler, which can hit a length. Uh, can bowl consistently over 90 miles an hour at, at first and second change. And um, I suppose what we saw from that robotic almost uh, style of play, using the data to work out a batsman before they've even got to the ground, saw the fallibility, didn't we? You know, I've, I've often watched baseball and thought baseball as a sport would be a hundred times better if the fielders weren't wearing those massive mitts because when, when the ball goes in the air, there is a sense of jeopardy, no matter the, the, the easy nature of the catch. But in baseball, every single time the catch is taken pretty much. In cricket, that is not true. And, and so it proved again. Uh, India dropped a lot of catches in the first test. Australia dropped a lot of catches in the second. Um, yeah, it's frustrates when it's your team dropping them. But boy, does it add to the drama. Catching, catching is very, very difficult when it comes to different grounds you go to, and especially in Australia as well. You know, if you've got a full crowd in Australia, you know, the viewing, seeing, seeing were, you know, through people, and it, it is very, very difficult. Ball comes to you a lot faster, but when you've got empty seats and you've got somebody sitting two rows and you, you, you're going, you're not sure if you have to be sort of, 10, 15 yards away from the bat, you know, to be 12 yards away from the bat. Yeah, the angle you have to move at, there is somebody sitting basically in a seat where you are, you are watching the nick and watching the, the sort of side of the bat. Then all of a sudden, if there's somebody moves or somebody's around, so it's very, very difficult. Catching in, in, in the slip area in, in, in any, any form of cricket is very, very difficult. Um, 
and it comes down to preparation. It comes down to practice. You know, we've just had a Boxing Day test match. Did the did the preparation suffer because you had Christmas Day, you had Christmas Eve, and and things like that? And they'll say, well, people will listen to this and say, well, surely that should just be in the mind, the robotic. You just you just catch it. it. Doesn't always work like that. You have to practice at it. And you know, one of the best catches I've ever played, the best slip field I ever played with, was Triscothic. And Triscothic would have. Before a test match, you would have between 15 and 100 catches at slip. Stand then, take 50 to 100 catches every single day of his test match, of his, of, his, of, his, of his innings. And you think that's a lot of catches. That's why Trez didn't drop any, because he was preparation was ridiculous. Now, when you look at something like India, they've just, you've got a different week, uh, sorry, a different, different person at second slip. Coley doesn't always go in there, he comes out of there. And that sometimes can change the dynamics of where you're at. We, during my time, I'll go off experience. If you had Triscothic and Flintoff, all of a sudden the two lads there, big lads, used to cover a wider area. Mm. You take you take them two out and put in maybe he's in 2009, he had Cook and Strauss. All of a sudden that the gap is not as big, and you put Pryor in there and you don't put Jones in there. So it works, it works with the system with with what you go with either side and what you feel comfortable with and the boundaries that you can cover. So it's not as simple as just saying, go out and catch it because it is very, very difficult when you're in the end position, especially when you're under pressure. Mm. I've got some, um, and I've always had this theory uh, about back-to-back test cricket. I was reading your, um, your, uh, your email that you send out, uh, Jared, about my momentum. I've never believed in momentum either. I, but what I do feel, and Harmy, be interested to hear what you have to say, you know, at the start of your test career, on average, how many days would there have been between a test, between two test matches? You know, as a kid growing up uh, in England, it was clockwork. You would play the first two test matches. The test would finish on the start on a Thursday. Forget the Sunday off and the rest day. Forget that yeah. for a minute. But you start on a Monday. <laughs> you'll finish on a Tuesday. And the second test would always start um, a week Thursday after. Okay, then the second test would be Thursday, Monday, and then the third test match, or possibly the fourth, they would add another week. So you would essentially have two and a half weeks between the third and fourth test match. Now, I imagine when you started, that would have been a kind of a similar kind of gap between test matches. I'm not sure what it was towards the end, but I often feel with the nature of back-to-back tests and what is asked of a participant, it asks so much of a player to play in a test match two things happen firstly if you're Tim Payne and the Australian team right after that demolition of Australia of India you've got the the singing of the of the uh, of the, the anthem you've got drinks all night you bask in the adulation of the newspapers singing your praises the next day with your feet up trying to take a little bit of a breather but before you know it instead of being able to properly recover and recuperate to compartmentalise what has happened, actually dissect and digest what's gone on. You're back out on the field. And that's where we get this seesaw kind of nature of cricket because the Australian team don't want to be back out on the field. They've just been told that they're heroes and now they've got to do it all over again. That's very difficult. The Indian team probably do want to be back out on the field because they want to get what's happened behind them. And, you know, this is their opportunity to actually correct some wrongs. But the other thing that I was feeling is mentally, when are you going to actually relax? Mentally, you're going to relax possibly when you're in the field 
it's the part it's the only time where you can just switch off for a nanosecond and that contributes to catches going down because if you're not switched on if you're not mentally fresh the split second it takes for the catch to come your way and for you to put it down that's the difference between a fully fit and energized and refreshed cricketer and one that's at the end of the day knackered well that's that's the point of preparation time leading into your first test match you know which is why which is why i find watching cricket the the visiting team they're on their game much more in the second test than the first test that's not rocket science that's that's obvious but in the end the second test they're acclimatized to the conditions you know, look at watch Aussie batsmen whenever they walk out onto the field. What do they do? They look at the sky, don't they? Mm. They get their eye, they get the light, they so they're in focus. So they, they, it, it's all working out on the on the field. And you see it, visiting teams, no matter the country. By the time you get to that second match, they're so much better. They're so mm. much on, more on it than they are in the first test. But you've you've also when you say that you mentioned there the freshness of, the, of in being fit and strong. I remember when Vaughan took over as captaincy, the captaincy, we went to Bangladesh. And the first thing he did was, and I mean, it was like marathon. We were flogged before the first test. And he, was, he wasn't bothered what happened in the warm games. Couldn't care how many overs, lads, bowls, you know, as long as they got through before, before play, after play, you were flogged. And I mean, ran, you know, the nuts off you. And it, 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 was, it was basically down to, right, when we get into competition and we get into test match mode, we are going to be as fit and as strong as we possibly can because people like that don't make mistakes. You know, if you're fit and strong, and you've got you know a high level of a high level of fitness behind you going into the, to a series, your skill level will come through by the end of it. But if you are not fit, if you're overweight, if you are, you know, you, there's a little question mark on, you know, a little niggle. Then all of a sudden you keep playing catch up. And that's when mistakes come in, and that's when you get you get injured, and you, you find yourself pretty much out of the team. So, I think that has a lot to do with with tours now, where the shorter you can go back to back because the lads are a lot fitter now than what they were when I played and the generation before. I think because they play that much cricket, there is so little time before the games because they they, they get they, they are. They're, going, they're coming from cricket, going into cricket, going on. And I think because of that, because of their level of fitness, is why, you know, why I think the game is better than, what it, than, than actually what it was. You're seeing less mistakes. You, you mentioned about dropping catches and you mentioned putting pressure on opposition. I, but I'm with you. Momentum, I don't think, is a, is, a, is a word in cricket too much. It's how you start. And the minute you start, and if a team starts well, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to stem the tide, whether that's momentum or not. I don't think momentum coming in from a game before makes a great deal of difference because they're all world-class cricketers. We've just seen team getting bowled out for 36. And then, you know, you, you see someone like Rahani going out and getting 100. He, he didn't think anything about 36. The modern-day cricketer doesn't think about what's just happened. You know, they think of the now, and that's the difference for me between first-class cricketers, cricketers who are average journeymen who will make a, a decent living up until the age of 35 and then have to work for the rest of their life are the ones that aren't mentally strong, aren't physically fit enough, aren't possibly technically good enough. The difference between them and the likes of Joss Butler, Ben Stokes, all these big Joe Roots, big superstars, is the ability to switch off and switch on. And sometimes they switch off in the field, but when the ball comes to them, they switch on. The average Joe... 
he doesn't he hasn't got the ability to switch back on and that's when mistakes come in and then obviously the pressure of the game comes on top of them uh, the last time uh, India played in Australia of course won the series uh, that was an Australia side without David Warner and Steve Smith well there's been no David Warner in the first few test matches and you could be say uh, there's been no Steve Smith either what's going wrong with Steve Smith we'll find out when we speak to Jared uh, very shortly you're listening to the cricket collective on Talksport 2 Listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport Two with myself, John Norman, Steve Harmison, and Jared Kimber, fresh from India's series leveling win at the MCG, one apiece now after they beat Australia by eight wickets, um, and uh, the series continues in Sydney and then on to Brisbane. That just doesn't seem right, but that's uh, that's what's happening. And pleased to say as well because there was some doubt about whether the third test would take place at the SCG, but it will. Um, Let's talk about Steve Smith, Jared. What is going on with Steve Smith? He can't buy a run, can't bat against Ashwin. Um, and Bumrah got uh, got rid of him uh, in the second innings uh, in the second Test match. I don't think he's gone. I don't, has he even hit double figures yet? Uh, I mean, he's he's not gone very far at all. I think um, Hazelwood might have outscored him in this series so far, <laughs> uh, which is not ideal. Uh, it, it's quite interesting. I'd have to go through all the dismissals, but, but there's. One thing that I think is common, which is that teams have stopped bowling a mile outside off stump to him. Yeah. So England. I was, had... That's a, sorry, mate. That's a brilliant point because the, the, the dismissals, I think, he's had one caught at first slip, hasn't he, mm. from Ashwin? Yeah. One bowled around, his, bowled legs. around his legs, which bowlers mm. have tried to do. What was the other one? Oh, leg. Was it a leg slip? He was caught at leg slip as well. Yeah. Leg so slip. They're, they're bowling changed. at the stumps, essentially, aren't they? And, and you need to go back to why this happened. I, I think a lot of it goes back to England had some success against him in 2015 by hanging the ball really wide. But they were in very English conditions. If you remember, when the pitches were a bit more yeah. flat, he suddenly looked great again. Uh, and so teams thought, well, that's what we have to do. We have to hang the ball wide to him because he's trying to hit everything to the leg side. In the middle of all this, uh, at one stage, I, I, it's in one of my old notebooks, I have about 20 pages of different field settings that I've seen to Steve Smith. Just crazy from... having two leg slips, uh, you know, to having like a ring of five guys from mid on to backward square leg, all these sorts of weird fields. And teams have basically at times, I remember having a chat with Herschel Gibbs on Twitter about it one day, just randomly, where he was saying, I don't understand why teams just don't bowl more at the sumps to him. And I said, well, teams have tried. It's just that he gets a couple of way and they usually pull back from it. If you look at the end of the 29 ashes, uh, 19 ashes, sorry, you can actually see where they, England start to bowl a lot more at the stumps and they start to really attack the stumps. And the thing is, he even he has to miss the odd ball or miss hit the odd ball. And the other thing is, and, you know, Harmi, you'll be much better at an expert at this, but you can't control the ball off your pads, off your hip, um, off your chest in the same way that you can the ball outside of stump. You have the ability in those positions to actually see the fielders to begin with. And also you're playing in front of yourself. Once you start playing on this other side, you're playing behind yourself. So if, if you keeping the stumps in play and you're making it so that he can't pick it, we've seen, I think, Gup 
still took an incredible catch off him. I think might have been in the World Cup. England started to attack his stumps more. Uh, Wagner went completely at his body, and and they you know they didn't give him any room there. India have gone back to his stumps essentially. I'm not saying that he won't uh, overcome this because he, I think he's still probably the best run scorer I've ever seen. If not the best batsman, he's the best modern run scorer I've ever seen. He'll find a way to work this out, but it just means that the game has changed to him again. And before that, what you would get with Smith was, it was hilarious. It was like, we're going to bowl four foot outside of stump. All right. Now we're going to bowl only Yorkers at middle stump. Mm. Now we're going to bowl only off cutters. And now we're going to bowl only outswing. And, and you would have these ridiculous plans where, you would watch a game and a team would try five completely different tactics and he, by the time he was 80. And it just didn't matter anymore. And I think what the teams have done now is that they've got enough analysis on him. They understand he might be able to get away. But if they continue to go at his stumps or his body, they can at least trap him to one side of the wicket. They can plug that side of the wicket. And they're willing to say, okay, he's going to get a couple of boundaries to fine leg because he's Steve Smith. That's who he is. But... We're going to keep attacking these stumps and we're going to keep these fields in. And I think that's the big change. It's almost, it's almost like they tried everything else. And now they're just like, they're trying this weird thing called patience. Yeah. As well as that, I think the, the field position is the biggest thing because you look at second and third slip, it doesn't really get caught second and third, mm. second slip possibly, but third slip and gully doesn't really get caught there. So there's no point having them there. So stop the scoring options on the leg side. I think the, one of the one, part of the reasons as well they chucked it outside off stump was to try and you know if he's not scoring, he's, you know the game's not getting away from you, and mm. you know we feel as though we can knock the other the other batsman over. If we've got Warner out before Smith gets in, all of a sudden we can bowl one side of the wicket. Steve Smith ain't scoring any runs, and all of a sudden he's under pressure because of six down. And I think that was part of England's plan and preparation as well from from England, but also from the rest of the world. I just think at this moment in time, Steve Smith's just lost his head. His head seems to be, it's not in sync with the rest of his body. And all of a sudden, he's just a little bit off balance at the point of contact. And I think when he does that, when you have people who have got different techniques, they have to be so in sync to make sure that they're in a position to hit the ball at the point of contact and the balance. The head's in a strong position. You know, the, the, both feet are firmly planted on the ground and the ability to hit the ball through the leg side, through the offside. Mm. And that's my worry with some of the England batsmen, the likes of Dom Sibley, the likes of uh, Rory Burns. You know, people like that, if Lawrence comes in, that would be my worry with, with somebody like Lawrence. So, you know, Steve Smith has a world-class cricketer. He is somebody who has overcome, like Jared's mentioned, four or five different plans at him, a wide-ranging plan to try and stop him from scoring and getting him out. And what has he done? He's had a couple of low scores and he's come back with an 80, 90, 100. That's what world-class players do. He will come back, not a problem. They're talking about him being under pressure. This kid's not under pressure. This kid is one of the best cricketers that's ever played the game. And he will find a way of scoring runs because that's what world-class cricketers do. I just want to add something there because there's something really interesting that Harmi talked about, which is that you don't need a second, third and, uh, and gully to him. It's important that to, to understand just how many wickets go to that cordon. Hmm. So if, if as a batsman, you could come up with a technique where you take out the cordon, right? You might have the odd dip like, like um, Smith is happening now, but you are taking 25 to 30% of your dismissals away, which is why he averages over 60 and other really good batsmen who aren't, you know, Coley and Root and Williamson and Baba Azam, they're all on talent, not that much different to him. The difference is he's taken away one of the most major dismissals in cricket. And that's part of his absolute genius. If you can 
if that means he can get bowled more around his legs and get caught at leg slip more, I think in the long run, he's still going to average more than those other people. But there might be periods and certain pitches and certain bowlers where he does get rolled a couple of times cheaply. It's just that, you know, since 2013, we haven't actually seen him go out. Uh, what about David Warner? There's um, a clamour to get him back in the side. Whether he's match fit or not, I'm not so sure. But, you know, what people are assuming, I suppose those that are desperate for him to get in, uh, part, partly because watching Joe, Joe Burns has been torturous, um, <laughs> is that we're going to see that David Warner that smashed 100 before lunch or, or whatever he did at Perth, you know, a few years back, uh, you know, when uh, Australia has absolutely destroyed India. But you know, is that, is that, does that David Warner still exist? Well, I mean, he made the big triple century in Australia, didn't he? He's still at home. He's still an incredible batsman. And that said, he's going up, you know, I mean, when you talk about that 100 before, uh, you know, that, that quick 100 in Perth, that was off Vinay Kumar, who, you know, all, all respect to Vinay Kumar as a T20 bowler, uh, you know, yeah. You know, it's almost like picking a meter ball in test level, uh, the sort of penetration that he has. And, and also against... Fairness, that, that innings against Pakistan last year... Uh, wonderful though it was again how many bowlers did they actually have they went in with a three-man attack this is this is an yeah. india side that went in with five didn't they that's, a, that's it's gonna have a the, big difference exactly they're gonna have two hall of fame bowl uh spinners already and Bumrah and whoever who whichever fit bodies they can fit around that that's a good attack uh, where's stuart uh, binning <laughs> <laughs> but did, I th- he was playing for beckenham last year wasn't it we could we could have got him watch um you know, I think when it comes down to it, if you if you if you look at the way that uh, what Warner can do, he can score thirty or forty runs quite quickly. He's we talk about his strength and his power, but he's actually the best runner between wickets in the world. He's brilliant at finding gaps. Uh, he can when when bowlers bowl that hard back of the length um, delivery to him, he just flicks it through mid wicket for two over and over again. It does get him out sometimes, but it, it means that the bowler doesn't have that dry spot to bowl to him. You can't really bowl full and wide. If you bowl short, he's a chance of hitting a couple of fours and sixes from that as well. He really does limit your options. And the flow-on effect from that is Wade has done an incredible job. Wade should not be opening in a test match. Wade doesn't have the technique or, or probably the temperament to do it. But Wade is just, you know, he's like an old Western character, really. He's, you know, he's, he's always mid-spit. He's always angry at someone. And, and he has the ability to do that. And at the other end is Joe Burns, who, I mean, I don't know if I... I've never seen a batsman just sort of fall off the cliff the way that poor Joe Burns has at the moment. I mean... If people are saying he should never play for Australia again. I'm like, I don't care if he plays for Australia again. Just give him a break right now is what yeah. he needs. He needs to be on a beach somewhere with a pina colada, not with a bat with it, you know, facing Boomer. So I think, you know, Wade is trying to hold on. What they just need is to be able to put a little bit more pressure back on India. At the moment, they don't, with Smith not making any runs, Manus being a bit up and down. I mean, Manus has not really made a lot of runs and has been incredibly lucky in this series. They only really have three guys of sort of international quality batting. What Warner can do is, even if he gets a 40 or 50 balls, he, he's going to give a different uh, dynamism. He's going to change the way that the Indian bowlers have to bowl. And Australia will be back in the game a little bit then. And at the moment, it's like Wade is holding on. Burns isn't there at all. Manus is getting dropped a lot. There's just there's nothing to put any pressure back on India. And if you look at the Australian batting lineup, it's actually, it's really interesting. They brought Cameron Green in and they're massively keen on Cameron Green. I mean, mm. Kerry O'Keefe was saying yeah, last Dave. night uh, he, could bat, he could average 30 with the ball and average 
40 with a bat. And I went, yes, he could be the fifth best all-rounder in the history yeah. of the game. I mean, that's possible, I suppose. Let's not put too much pressure on him. But there's one thing that you have to note about Cameron Green is he's an incredibly defensive batsman. He has been at first-class level and he is at test level. Tim Payne, everything we know about Tim Payne is he's basically very hard to get out. He doesn't make a lot of runs, but he's hard to get out. That means there's no real batsman there that can put any pressure back. Travis Head, in some kind of form, perhaps could. Warner changes that, and he does change the way the team is. And I think because of that, Warner could help. But but you're right. I mean, he's not coming back against, you know, average attacks. He's coming get back against a very good attack who are, you know, playing very good cricket. And he's got a... Ashwin bowls beautifully against Warner. And Boomerah should be the kind of bowler that should trouble him as well. So it'd be very interesting to see what happens. The thing with Warner, the thing I get with Warner is... But Warner gives you an X factor that the opposition bowlers don't want to... Not don't want to bowl at, but you think... If, who would I rather bowl at, Burns or Warner? I would actually, if I was Lang, I'd be getting into his ear. Because I actually think, I actually think, I actually think um, the Warner stuff is, has he not so much dropped off a cliff as in, I think psychologically, is it a point where he's got a few quid in his pocket now? He's playing all these things around the world. Is he comfortable with his life? He's not, that, that dog, that Jack Russell that came in at, at the start of his career that had to fight for everything and he, really had a go at everybody and he wanted to pick a fight and it was he was hungry to play cricket has his hunger dropped a little bit because of the amount of money he's earning from playing around the world and that's where I'd be getting into into David Warner if I was Justin Langer and saying look put all that to one side go back to the dog that picks a fight go and pick a fight with 11 Indians go and pick a fight with people go and have a go at the umpires go and be David Warner that you were rather than this Mr Nice guy who Seems to be not getting any runs, or who doesn't seem to be, who doesn't seem to have that fight again, because that was the that's the Warner that Australia need. I think that they did that, and um, within twelve months he was getting Cameron Bancroft to rub sandpaper on the ball. <laughs> yeah. He changed. He, he did change. He went from the I'd mad dog to Warner. I'd rather have uh, that Warner every day of the week. It's, it's still David Warner, isn't it? And uh, you'd certainly see him in that side ahead of Joe Burns. And look, a session of Warner and Wade at, at the start of an innings, that's, that's the game going back Australia's way, isn't it? Look, I'm just pleased that we've still got another couple of tests. You know, unless India win the third test match, uh, this series is, is alive, of course. Uh, India holds the trophy after beating Australia last time out. Um, but no, I'm, just, I'm just really, really happy. Firstly, Australia lost. And secondly, uh, we've got two more tests to look forward to. What is it about Australia-India clashes? They are, forget the Ashes, they're, they're the best. Uh, Jared, let you get some sleep. We'll chat to you soon. Um, and uh, Harmy, we will chat uh, very shortly out of the break about uh, the late, great Robin Jackman. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport. Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertz and the Bypassal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to Ertz and the Channelized Bimbingus at the Bypassal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chattel sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Now, uh, a chance to listen back with some sadness uh, to an interview that took place uh, at the start of the year, January, uh, in Cape Town. Uh, between Mark Nicholas, part of the uh, TalkSport 2 commentary team, cricket commentary team, and uh, sadly the late, great Robin Jackman. Jackers was in town, uh, or rather we were in his town, and uh, during a lunch interval in the test series between England and South Africa, and he joined us to look back at his career, uh, as well as discussing many, many other tales. Uh, hostile West Indies attack, the future of test cricket, and uh, talent spotting a certain Jack Callis. So... Sit back and enjoy as we remember the late Sir Robin Jackman, who passed away sadly on Christmas Day, the age of 75. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. This remarkable career of yours that's taken, taken you to South Africa and has become your home, your Cape Town life, is, well, it's a wonderful place to live in, in so many ways. You've played cricket here. I mean, you've had quite a journey in your career, haven't you? I can't think of... I don't, if I had to do it again, I'd do it in a heartbeat because it, it's... To have a, a passion for something like I do for cricket and you do for cricket and be able to stick with it for as long... with it, Beyond your playing days, right, when, you, when you're playing and so on, but to be able to get involved either in coaching or in, in broadcasting, as the case with both of us. Uh, it's almost a privilege to be able to stay in touch with something that you really love. And it's, it's, been, it's, it's been a great journey. It's taken me all over the world. Um, and I've, places that, like the Caribbean, you know, it's quite expensive to go to the Caribbean. But when you're getting paid to go there, it makes it that much easier. You did cause quite a rumpus when you went there. I mean, oh, the you first got time, thrown yes. out of Guyana. Yeah. I mean, you Dismissed. had these connections with South Africa. Really disgraceful for you. You were making an England debut at 35, I think I'm right in saying, in theory, and it was curtailed because they didn't want you in Guyana. It was only when you got more sympathy from the politicians in Barbados that it finally happened. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was an interesting little spell. Um, it. Uh, the, I've got to say that the... The MCC, which were the colours we were playing under then, um, were quite strict about exactly what would happen. If Guyana didn't want me, uh, then the whole team would go home. But it wasn't that simple because 
all the islands, as, as you know, of independent governments and so on and so forth, so they could make up their minds as to whether they were prepared to carry on with the series. And fortunately for me, it did carry on because I, I played my first test match in, in Barbados that, on that trip. Yeah, there was a tour led by Ian Botham. And a very difficult tour. West Indies were a phenomenal side. You were playing against the greatest collective fast bowling attack there's ever been. And a bunch of batsmen such as Viv Richards and Gordon Greenwich and Clive Lloyd, who are amongst the greatest players that have ever been. So with respect to your fast bowling skills, what, you're just a midget. You're five foot nine, aren't you, or something? I mean, please. It was green, so was it gave me a little bit was of... Was it really? Oh, not half. How many... It was fluorescent green. Okay. Mm. For their quicks, did you take wickets? For their... Tell the world about your bowling um, in that match. I got a wicket with a f my fifth ball in Test cricket. Uh, Which was who? Greenwich. Yeah, think. pretty good. It pretty was good one player. of them. It was Greenwich or Haynes. It was one of them. He could bat that Greenwich. Um, and he's just been knighted, yes, I noticed. I that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sir Clive. Sir Clive Lloyd yeah. also. So the three people you mentioned are knights of the realm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was it was a hard test match for us because um, we put them in, we won the toss and put them in, and they got they got enough, you know, they got two hundred or, or whatever. I think you know, I'm, somebody probably phoned me back and say, no, you didn't, you batted first, and because I'm not very good on statistical memories. All I can recall thinking to myself, and I was always quite a positive cricketer. I always felt that you know nothing was insurmountable. But I, my messages going home were, I don't, I don't see how we can win this test series. We can't, I don't see how we'll have enough time to get 20 wickets uh, in the day, or in the game, not in the day, in the game. Because you could bowl as many bounces as you like then. And if you couldn't hook, you couldn't score. And so it was a, it was a case of survival to a degree. Um, even for the best of the batsmen. And you couldn't score at any sort of rate to advance the game to give yourself time to get 20 wickets. So remind us of the West Indies bowling attack. Oh, it was very ordinary. Holding. Bowling, beaten for pace there. There's a quick delivery from Michael Holding. Garner. And he's bowled him too. And Garner's having a ball out there. Roberts. And it's a wicket, and it's Andy Roberts, fifth wicket of the innings, rounding off a wonderful day's bowling. Croft. <laughs> Matt Croft was nasty. Oh, and we had a we had a friendly warm-up game when the tour. It said the tour would continue. We had a, what they labelled as a friendly in Barbados, and that bowling attack was Marshall, uh, Clark. Hartley Elaine, I think. Daniel. And Daniel. Wayne Daniel. Yeah. Useful. Yeah. Uh, how about now? Uh, John's just been on uh, and tells me you've got Greenwich and Haynes. He just looked at that and Clive Lloyd. Oh, all in the same innings. So, so you were christened by Alan Gibson, the cricket writer, the Shoreditch Sparrow. But you, weren't, you never came from Shoreditch. No, I didn't. I think it was something to do... I think he felt, for some unknown reason, I was reasonably theatrical on the field. Well, he were. Correct. Anybody and, uh, applauded, you used to shout, thanks, Mum. Yeah. Yeah, she was always there. Yeah. And there, apparently, the, the Shoreditch Sparrow was a, um, an, an actor in the local theatre or whatever, so... Sorry, crickets. 
in great shape. I mean, you're probably well aware of that. You played in a tremendous side when you emerged as a young cricketer in the mid-60s. You've seen cricket in so many decades. It was the game of black and white TV in, in the mid-60s, and, and, and you came on the back of real luminaries, didn't you? A Surrey side of people like Peter May and Alec Bedser and, and Jim Laker and Mickey Stewart. Surrey cricket is an enormously strong part of English cricket at large. Uh, yeah, I, th I think there was a time when when people used to say if if there aren't players from Surrey and from Yorkshire in the England team, then the England team's a weak team. I think that was very true to a degree. Surrey won a championship eight years running in, the, or seven years running in the 50s, and then Yorkshire sort of took that over. But those names that you mentioned are so familiar, not just because they were wonderful cricketers, but because they were just about still on the staff when I was having trials and things like that. Kenny Barrington, uh, Peter Loder, Roy Sweatman. You know, it was it was a, it was really something to suddenly find yourself amongst these amazing yeah. players. And then when you came here in the early 70s, the standard of um, domestic Curry Cup cricket was so strong, wasn't it? So many fantastic South African players emerging in what then became, over the 70s and 80s, the strongest, perhaps, collective group of South African cricketers ever. I, I think you're right. It, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a tragedy that that team wasn't exposed more across the world because I, the, I would love to have seen how uh, the South African side of the 70s would have gone against Australia and would have gone against England and the West Indies. Uh, but that wasn't to be, and, and because of the, uh, the apartheid situation and getting kicked out of the game for 20 years. But it was, it was a... Um, the experience out here wasn't just curry cup cricket. I came here in 1968 because I turned pro in 65 and I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't getting into the Surrey side that much. And I thought I needed to get out of England in the winter and go and play somewhere, wherever, and to get better, to improve. And through um, Jeff Howard, who was, the, who was the secretary of Surrey at the time, he had a, a contact out here and I came out and played for Cape Town Cricket Club and overseas players weren't allowed to play in the Curry Cup at that stage but to give you an idea of how strong club cricket was the first game that we played was against Stellenbosch University Eddie Barlow opened the batting Andre Brains came in number three Mike Proctor came in number five and pushed off the sight screen when he wasn't bad. I mean, I thought, well, this is club cricket. Yeah, right. I've come yeah. to a good place. Yeah, interesting. I, I played here in 89, and, and um, the, we played in a 60-over um, competition semi-final against the university side, and there were 19 first-class players on the field. We opened the bowling with Garth LaRue and Stephen Jeffries. And then Mia's first change, frightening. As Hilfen House uh, continues, and now Callis... Brings up the three figures. He's all class, Jack Callis. You you uncovered a lot of players. You you not you only you didn't only play here. I'll come back to Rhodesia in a second. But while I'm on the subject of Western Province, where you began here, you then became coach and and you were um, very responsible for for the, the first part of the careers of guys like uh, Gary Kirsten and Jacques Callis. Yeah, I, I can't claim uh, Jacques. 
he was still at school when, when that was going on, and Duncan Fletcher. You was, rang me about him. Was his mentor? I told Duncan. Yeah, I told you. You I, rang I me. You said him. there's a boy playing here who's going to be as good as Barry Richards. Mm. Well, the late Hilton Ackerman and I went to Weinberg Boys High School, and this 13-year-old he'd just gone into the senior school, was in the nets, and he couldn't he couldn't make a bulge in the netting, but everything was perfect, absolutely perfect, and he bowled some seamers. Nice sort of action, good scene position, and that's it. And as we left the school, Hilton said to me, "We've just seen a future Test player without a shadow of a doubt." And he, he was that stylish then. And then, of course, he grew as a man. He was only a little, little reed of a boy at 13, and he grew and uh, started to be able to hit it off the square. My goodness me, didn't he do it well? And he's gone. He's nicked it. Jackman to Vessels. And he's knocked him over. A beautiful delivery through the defence of Jackman Vessels and Robin Robin Jackman. And why shouldn't he be excited? He's putting one in with a real chance of 5 for 77. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talk Sport 2 and the second part of a very special interview from earlier in 2020 between Mark Nicholas and the late great Robin Jackman during a lunch interval in the Test Series between South Africa and England. And they discussed a whole host of topics. And after he passed away at the age of 75, we remember his extraordinary career. Uh, but here he begins by discussing the former South African quick, Werner Philander. Where do you put Vernon Philander in the pantheon? 220-odd wickets at 21 and a half. I mean, it's jaw-dropping, isn't it? And he's retiring. Shame, isn't Can it? you believe it? Uh, he's he's really proved that with a with a bit of hard work. When he started out, he was a he was a little bit more overweight than he should have been, and you know one or two people had a word with him and said, you know, if you you want to play this game properly and at the top level, you you're going to have to do a bit of work. You get yourself really fit and practice more than you are, and so on and so forth. And give him his credit, he took it on board. And he's turned into one of those, he's almost, I don't know, is he comparable to Richard Hadley? Is that, is that? Well, he isn't as quick as Hadley. I mean, funny enough, I think he's comparable to James Anderson. Okay. I I think they're sort of similar. They both take their wickets by pitching the ball up and moving the ball. They use skill as their first weapon rather than speed. They both have good brains for the game. They both have staying power. Um, I, I think he might be a little more brilliant uh, with using the Kookaburra ball than Anderson, but Anderson in English conditions is almost without compare. Um, I, I'm just a sort of rather in awe of his record. I mean, he's played cricket all around the world. He, he sort of trundles in, doesn't he, and lets yeah. it go at about 125, <laughs> 130 and gets everybody out. He, he, he gets top players. He gets the top order out, which is fantastic. The other, the other thing I'd, I wouldn't mind knowing if I was one of these research boffins is how many fivers he got in in his first ten test matches. He just kept knocking the He stormed the game, didn't yeah, he? Well, yeah, yeah, he did, yeah. And he went to places like New Zealand, which 
Um, okay, there might be a little bit of grass there. There isn't a great deal of pace in those pitches, and he did well there. And he he didn't let himself down on the subcontinent. No, no it's interesting. Yeah, it's fantastic to think that your period from mid '60s to now involved with cricket. You know, seeing it up close and personal. And yet things like figures don't change, you know. They're the best bowlers getting as wickets at 21 and a half. So too the best bowlers of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 from Fred Truman, who you would have first admired, who took him at about that rate through Malcolm Marshall all the way through to now. And, and when you watch the game today, do you still like cricket as much as you ever did? Yes, I do. I, I, I hesitated for a second because it's it, there are three different formats now and another one coming in in, in England shortly. Um, but this game that we're here to do is is still, to me, the ultimate the ultimate test. Uh, I, had, I did a little function last night for Lord's Taverners, South Africa, and Michael Atherton very kindly agreed to come along and have a chat as, as, part, as part of the entertainment to the dinner. It was a fundraiser for Lord's Taverners. And uh, my final question to him was the future of Test cricket and what does he think of the four-day game being passed by the various countries and therefore Test cricket coming down to four days instead of five. And he did a very interesting thing. He said, before I answer you, Jackers, there were 200 people in the room. How many of you in the room would like test cricket to change from five days to four. Not one hand went up. Mind you, it wasn't a youthful room, which might have something to do with it, but not one hand went up. And I thought, I thought to myself, I don't want that to happen because uh, I've seen so many brilliant fifth days. And on top of that, you need five days quite often purely because a day gets rained out somewhere or you lose a lot of light, particularly in, in, in Asia. It gets dark very early. And so you, you kind of need that extra time. That was a good point. Vernon took... Wait for this. Wait for this. Four fivers in his first six innings. Six. Six, six tests. His first six innings. And 51 wickets in his first seven matches. 51 wickets in the first seven test matches. It's phenomenal. Just by wobbling it around on a length. Yeah. Uh, that is skillful, isn't it? That's he reduced pretty. Australia to 21 mm. for nine here. Mm. Um, who come on the best players? You come on, you've got to tell us. Best player you ever bowled at? B.A. Richards. And you got him out more than anybody else. Do you know that? Yeah, Seven I do. times. I do. It was in his book. I think actually. you told me, actually. Yeah, I probably <laughs> did. But it's interesting. It's quite interesting because who was it who wrote? Who was it who wrote Barry's book? Played for Hampshire. Um, Mur Mur Andy Murta. Andy Murta. He got hold of me and he said, "Would you like to contribute somewhere along the line?" And I said, "Sure, here's a contribution." And I gave it to him, and he, he printed it word for word. And yes, I, pl I mean, I played against Barry more than most people because I played against him in, in the Curry Cup here, and. Uh, Surrey versus Hampshire in England. So, yes, I did happen to get him out more often than any other bowler. But I think he averaged 87 or 85. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> good, good qualification. It was like Court Dupree bowled Jackman 172 and so on. And so it went you, on. You obviously know who got me out in the last game we played against each other. Sylvester Club. You. <laughs> Shame.
The late, great Robin Jackman in conversation with our very own Mark Nicholas. If you missed any of the interview or wish to catch up, you can download the podcast from the following on feed, available on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify. Thanks for listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Hold that, please. Level five. Thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertz and the Bypassal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to Ertz and the Channelized Bimbingus at the Bypassal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chattel sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how.